And now, a Breakthrough Basketball original podcast, The Jim Huber Show. After basketball, his dream is to become a rodeo clown. Jim Huber. Hey, everybody. Oh, it is hard work being this good. I was like, ow. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a, a big choo-choo train. We join The Jim Huber Show, already in progress. Nobody was more passionate about the game of basketball than Flip Saunders. Flip was an icon and a staple. Flip Saunders was one of the most uh, creative and innovative coaches in the time I've been in the league. All right, so today, Jimmy on the show, Alan Thompson. Our sons play basketball together, and Big Al is, they call him Big Al because he's seven feet easy. Some people walk in a room like a 6'10 guy and uh-huh. they'll go, oh, he's probably seven feet. <laughs> no, this is for real. You know, Al for sure. walks in and you're like, wow, that is a seven foot human being. Beautiful. Fifth all time in blocks at Tulsa. Is there you a lot of Yeah, yeah, Al could swatch you, man. <laughs> so he played for Flip Saunders at Tulsa and J.D. Barnett, and, and then he played for Flip at the CBA. And so we would sit around practices, and I remember talking to Al about Flip Saunders because I, I knew Flip yeah, a little bit in Minnesota. And, you know, he passed, and it was so sad. So I called Al and said, hey, would you take a few minutes and, and share some memories today uh, about Flip Saunders? You know, from player 1 to 15, was always picking everybody up. There are not a lot of coaches that, that us players play for that you continue on and have a lifelong relationship slash friendship with. He always was smiling. I mean, that, that to me was one of the most unique things. He was, uh, it was just fun to be around, just a, an incredibly nice person. Flip was a, what I call a lifer. Thank you, Flip. I'm going to miss you. It's just the outpouring of, of love from former players. Like I know like Kevin Garnett is one of the big figures, and you see on Twitter when he has a picture of him facing a parking spot and says, forever in my heart, father figure and a mentor, and just how much he meant to him. Tell me, like, what did he do as a coach to connect with the players so well? You know, my first uh, introduction at the University of Tulsa to Flip was he had uh, taken the place of Kevin O'Neill, who recruited me and went to Arizona, and so Flip was coming in. And uh, it just, to talk to you, Flip was really good with magic. He'd do magic tricks all the time. Uh, and the first time I ever met him, he put me in, and he being seven foot, he says, I'll post you up, I'm going to score on you, I can score on you. I'm like, whatever, Flip, you're crazy. <laughs> Actually, I still call him Coach Saunders. And, and so Flip's posting me up. He takes the ball, puts it underneath my shoulder, flips it up over my head and brings it back to him. So I turn around, and he shoots a little hook shot, and it goes in. I'm just like, oh, are you kidding me? Uh, I remember him taking me into the office one day towards the end of my redshirt freshman year, and he goes, Alan, he goes, you're like a brand-new colt that just got released into the pasture, and, and you just have to run all over the pasture and explore everything. And he said, now that year is up, and you need to focus on getting better and improving your skills. So... Uh, stuff like that. He would also would have um, fight nights. Mike Tyson fights were huge back in the day. So we'd all go over to Flip's house, um, and he'd get it on the pay-per-view, and, you know, we'd put, make a big, thing, you know, knockouts in the ring or what in, what uh, round it would be and all this stuff. And um, Debbie, they would cook for us, so they'd have food catered in, and we'd just all kind of hang out and bond. So he's so much more than just the X and O's, it sounds like, you know, with creating the relationship by doing these activities outside of the basketball court. Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, the further you get along in 
in the coaching progression and the coaching ladder, it's it's more about the the Jimmys and the Joes than it is the X's and O's. And Flip personified that even uh, to the point where he, um, you know, in college, he told me he said, oh, "I'm going to win an NBA championship someday." And this was before he even had an NBA job. So it was pretty amazing. That's before he's even a head coach and, <laughs> and semi-pro uh, yeah. making that statement. Yeah, because yeah, that's what he told he was uh, he was going to leave, and he actually went to Cedar Rapids Thrillers with Musselman, and then he ended up getting a job at Lacrosse, and and he also took an assistant coach with him, a gentleman by the name of John Zierden, who's now with the uh, Washington Wizards, and his son plays for Creighton, Isaiah Zierden. And so I graduate, and our coach got let go, and uh, Flip and Z give me a call and said, Al, we'd really like you to come in to um, free agent camp. I didn't get drafted. Uh, they just like, we just want, we want you to come into free agent camp and, and give it a shot. And Z basically said, look, Al, you know the system. You know the defensive system. You're going to have to learn the plays. But all we need you to do is play defense, hit the open jumper when you have it, and number one is practice as hard as you can in practice so that the guys would be ready to play for the games. I made it all the way to the last day of veteran camp, and it was down to me and another uh, player from the University of Little Rock. And they took him and, and cut me. Uh, so I got the phone call that I got, had gotten cut. Uh, how did he break gone. that news to you when he when he told it, your cut after coaching in college? How'd that go? Um, it, well, he just said to me, he said, look, Al, here's, here's what – you offer, and I think that this other one is just a little bit bigger and stronger at this point. If you're a little more physical, we think that this would work out for you. Um, they set me up with Marcus Haynes, and I went and played three weeks with Marcus Haynes traveling all over the country until I get a call back from Flip and said, Al, um, the other gentleman who was with us just didn't work out. You know, he was he was complaining about playing time and things of that nature, and so we've decided to make a change. And we want you to come back and and be the basically the tenth man with the Catbirds. You know, I did what needed to be done, and I kept my head down and kept my nose clean. And uh, look, I was fortunate enough to be on the roster for the rest of the year. Flip was known around Minneapolis as as a very laid back guy. Everybody loved Flip. He made people laugh. He didn't like confrontations. Um, and Things went really well in Minnesota when you had Kevin Garnett as as the leader of the team. But other times, Flip had a hard time with players like Latrell Sprewell, I think, and, mm-hmm. and Arenas. Rasheed Wallace in Detroit. Yeah, and in Washington, right? That was Arenas, yeah. had the Gilbert guns Arenas. in the locker yep. room. Stuff. Yep. I mean, uh, what, what was your sense of Flip when he had to deal with a player like that? Well, the good thing is at lacrosse, Flip was the GM and coach. And so Flip would tell you this. He says, look, you can do what you want, but I can find somebody else in here to come take your spot. I mean, back in those days, the, the CBA was basically the D League, and they could find somebody else off of the street to, not off the street per se, but to take your spot. The other thing that Flip was really good at was assessing talent. I mean, we had talent, David Rivers, from Notre Dame, Derek Gervin, uh, the Iceman's brother, uh, Jaron Jackson, who ended up playing uh, years in the league for the San Antonio Spurs and championships, uh, Kenny Battle from Illinois. Oh, he could jump. Man, I got to oh, get up. He could. The, the problem with Kenny is he's a tweener, and then, you know, he had hurt his ankle. But the great thing is that Flip put him in position where he could be successful. 
of uh, taking advantage of his, his speed and quickness against a, uh, a a bigger four or playing out on the wing and getting up and just you know creating havoc and running all around the basketball court making steals and and still dunking fairly well. That's where you, when you talk about that offensively, you hear that Flip was like a mastermind. What did he do offensively that that you know, made him that type of coach and have uh, such a positive impact on his teams on the offensive side? Well, I mean, Flip's playbook number one is infamous for being big. It was huge. Um, it was very well organized, and he would take advantage of mismatches. Um, that we would have. And I mean, some of the plays were 452 or Utah 45. So if, uh, Jaron Jackson had a guard, a guy who couldn't guard him, he'd isolate him out on the wing or David Rivers knew that, um, our big man, Brian Riley at the time could knock down threes and that he could get around the corner on the pick and roll and how they were guarding it. He'd call Utah 45, which is basically, you know, a John Stockton and Carl Malone type play. Um, and he was able to put players in situations where they could be successful. How do, how do you see, like, if you were talking to a high school or a junior high coach, what would you tell them on the offensive end, what you learned? How could they implement that in their own program? Well, I think it's being able to recognize, number one, the abilities of the players you have. So if you have a point guard who's pretty good in the paint and he gets a smaller, weaker uh, player on him to be able to let that player go down in the post and post his player up and have some success. Just seeing those mismatches and not being so late upon running your uh, your system or, you know, you have to run here, you have to cut here, you have to do that. Just take advantage of it and playing basketball. Well, see, kind of similar, like, when you think about football coaches, how there's such a tre- chess match where it's like they're running counters yeah. and running certain plays and trying to find isolations. Is that, that what he was kind of yeah. like on the basketball side? You know what, Jim, that's exactly how it was. He was able to put a formation together and counter whatever defense the opponents were running. Um, And then him and David Rivers had such a connection. They would be three plays ahead of the team we were playing that David would know, I'm going to set this guy up this way so that two plays from now we're going to run that same play, but we're going to run the counter off of it. And I'm going to put these people in this position so that we can be successful. How would he create that type of relationship with the point guard? They'd be on the same page and thinking three plays ahead and, and be calling out the same type of play. How would that work? Um, it, it worked in practice. I mean, we just we run a lot of dummy offense, and they would know kind of the scouting report, and they would just talk about it uh, constantly. Um, throughout the season. That was in the midst. I think David got called maybe two 10-day contracts that year um, and then came back to us towards the end of the season, if I remember correctly. Um, and it's just through communication and working through things and basically having the same set of eyes. So you win that championship, that CBA championship with, with Flip, and, and Flip ends up staying there a couple more years, and you get you go to Portugal. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they ship you, Alan. What did you do? They now, go, hey, where's Thompson? Oh, we shipped uh, him to Portugal. He's across uh, the ocean. You know, that that uh, that was actually my doing. I had a chance to go back there the next year and play with lacrosse again. Um, and let's put it this way. My, I made a, a whopping $250 a week in the CBA. My bonus check uh, from winning the ninety one ninety two CBA championship was more than more money than I made the entire year before. Um, 
So it was, I was like, man, I can come back here in the CBA and I love lacrosse, or I can go overseas and take my shot at overseas. And that's why I chose to go overseas and, and took the money. Now, it's rude, but Alan and I are friends, so I'm just going to ask you, how much how much dough were they paying you over in Portugal to go over there? Uh, six figures. That's not bad. And, and, you, know, and you learned Portuguese, right? Over I there. did learn Portuguese. Now, they still owe me about 70 grand because they didn't pay me all my contracts. It's typical. <laughs> can, you, can you say anything in Portuguese right now? Yeah, uh, give me my uh, money. Where's my money? <laughs> no, I can't, like, otro, otro lado, other side. So when you're on the basketball court, you call out, hey, other side, go to the other side, or they're on the other side. When I first came back from Portugal, I would uh, I would be on the court in America speaking Portuguese, calling out screens and things like that. <laughs> Let's quiz Jim, Allen. Do you know where Portugal is, Jim? Let's just quiz. So European. European? Yes. Hey, you're European. right. What is the number one food? Allen, don't they, tell them. No, they eat okay. Portuguese. That's, <laughs> what, that's, what, that's what they eat. What is Portuguese? That's that uh, mushy type stuff that they, they make, and it's like a noodle type mesh, and they mix it in with some fish, and they put that soy sauce on it. That's called Portuguese. Alan. Yeah, Portuguese. Alan, is he, is he on? <laughs> you haven't had that. Not even, not even close. <laughs> dried cod, right? That's... Yeah, it's called bacalhau. Oh my God, dried cod? Wow. Yeah. It's the biggest yeah, thing going. you want to come back, Alan. Well, you know you're oh. making triple digits. And then after Alan left, Portugal Jim became the first country in the world to legalize all drugs which might explain <laughs> eating all that cod it's all it's all fair game over there so. hey, going, go, going back to flip though steve ashburner of the nba.com mentioned that when he got you know fired from minnesota nine out of ten years they're in the they're in the playoffs and yep. in the eastern conference finals they end up with detroit and he gets fired and he talks about even though getting fired he was never able to like hold a grudge and stay mad. Flip was extremely competitive. Don't don't get him wrong. So I don't think he would have verbalized those, but I'm sure he tucked it away in the back of his head, and um, would come to a time when they were on the basketball court, either playing Minnesota or something like that. He would make sure that it was that uh, he would win. But he was, he was extremely laid back. I mean, completely laid back. I uh, I always called him Coach Saunders. Coach Saunders, Coach Saunders in, in college, and that was fine. Uh, when I was in the CBA, when I finally got back, um, we were at a Christmas party, and I was like, hey, Coach Saunders, how you doing? Good to see you, Coach Saunders. Everything was Coach Saunders, and he looks at me and he goes, Al, call me Flip. Stop calling me Coach Saunders. I am Flip. So he wouldn't hold grudges. He was extremely laid back, but when it came to competing in the, NBA, in, in the CBA championship, we're playing – uh, Cedar Rapids uh, thrillers, and they're coached by Musselman, who used to coach on there. And I can guarantee you, Flip was out to win. He was out for blood, and uh, he made it known to all of us that he wanted to win that. Now he's also extremely superstitious and wore the same purple suit for I don't know how many games until we lost. But uh, purple, uh, he, huh? Yeah, it was a, it was a double-breasted purple suit. I can remember it to this day. Well, he's from Minnesota. He might have borrowed that from Prince or something. You know? <laughs> hey, it, was, it wasn't quite that purple. I know he didn't get it from McHale. I can guarantee you that. 
Hey, he he played for a, a, one of the most competitive coaches of all time was Muscle. Bill Musselman, yeah. who was who said what was a great quote he had that defeat is worse than death because you got to live with defeat. You know, he was he was extremely competitive and and he was also a showman in Minnesota and stuff. I mean, the the pre games and stuff that that, that Flip learned it, it was an incredible routine. Well, you know what we. Uh Wow, I think our second year at Tulsa, my second year at Tulsa, we were having a terrible year. We were losing, and everybody was down. And we put in uh, his pregame routines, and it was something like what the Globetrotters would do. Exactly, and, it was. It was and, yeah, amazing. it was. So, like the end of it, I don't remember all that I had. I didn't have to do much because I, you know, I wasn't much of a ball handler. But like a, the guy would dribble between my legs, I would have to jump up. He dribbled between <laughs> my legs, throw it off the backboard, and I would dunk it. And we did that pregame warm up for a, a full year until, and then he uh, flipped left. But yeah, we did the warm up and everything. I, I can't believe JD Barnett allowed that to happen, uh, man. Holy cow. How did that take that's, place? That's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, I was reading some of the articles as well, and they had flip sayings like, the truth cannot be controversial. Uh, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. You are the position you can guard. Can you remember yeah. these quotes, these sayings, and any other ones that kind of ring true to you today? The only ones I really remember, I mean, not necessarily remember verbatim, but I remember if we had a bad game in the CBA, he'd be like, hey, none of, none of you are above the law. I can go find somebody else and, and things of that nature. Those are the only ones I really remember. Uh, quite honestly, Jim, I, I'm Al old. only remembers the threats to his job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The wisdom that he remembers when they. Hey, hey you. <laughs> when you're the number ten guy on the bench, that's what you remember. Like, oh yeah. yeah, you remember that, and I was like, wow, was I not cheering loud enough on the bench? You may get rid of me. What have you seen yourself do working with? I know you've coached. Um, mm-hmm. You know, youth, high school, kids. What have you seen yourself do that's kind of similar, maybe to flip that's had a positive impact on kids? The main thing is repetition. I mean, we shot tons of jump shots from game spots. Uh, and if you watch the NBA, even the big guys don't miss jump shots because of, of the repetition. Um, and then the second thing is keep it fun. So we would always do half-court shots at the end of the CBA practice, and it was usually for money at that point. And so the ability to have fun, now you can't do that for high school and youth kids. But How have you tweaked it to make it fit for like youth and high school kids? Two teams, one make five layups, make five free throws, make five three-pointers, and then you have to hit a half-court shot. It takes a while sometimes, but when they hit that half-court shot, then just run around and go crazy like you just won <laughs> the, the CBA championship. Yeah. yeah, I mean, hey, I still flip, ran around like crazy, hugging everybody, and... Uh, so that's it, and, and just the repetition of, of the jump shot, the jump shot, the jump shot. Do you remember anything from the night that you guys won the CBA championship sure. about Flip? Do you remember anything from that night? I remember we ran around like crazy. We won. We were in lacrosse. Uh, we go into the locker room, and they got the champagne and everything there. And I remember us shaking up the champagne, and then, um, man, it stung. I know why all these guys, I mean, baseball <laughs> players are kind of wimps. I understand why they wear the Oakleys because yeah. it stings, but Goggles. come on, suck it up. And then we ended up going out whew, all night and had a, just, you know, a big old cigar and, and uh, stayed out all night. So it was, it was a great time. And the chemistry that we had as a team and how Flip was able to get that together, basically if you didn't fit in, he got rid of you. 
the talent that we had and the camaraderie and the chemistry that that team had is why you win championships. You still you you have your ring, don't you? Did you get a ring oh, yeah. at that time? Oh yeah, yeah, and it says Road Warriors on the side of it uh, because we were unbelievable on the road. And then secondly, Flip also coached at a junior college, and at that junior college were the Road Warriors. They played football at this junior college. Uh, the Road Warriors from the WWE, WWE. Oh, yeah. Era. I remember those yeah. guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and Flip was still friends with them and everything. So, But we would we call ourselves the Road Warriors, and they put the Road Warriors on the side of the ring, and I, I still have the ring, yeah. Alan Thompson, my only seven-foot friend in the world, the only guy I know seven feet tall. Three out of a million people are as tall as you, Al. Well, that puts in perspective today, doesn't it? Let's quiz Al and see what he knows. What do you know? Give me the height on Shaq. How tall? 7'1". Seven, 7'1". One. Seven, one. Ding, ding. Andre the Giant. Jimmy, how tall? 7'8". 7'3". 7'4". Andre gosh, was 7'4". Peter Mayhew. Who the heck is he? So wait a second. So he either has to be... He's an actor, I would assume, and he is either Lurch, um, Chewaka, or... Uh, <laughs> well, what? Hold on, what did you say? Did you say Chewbacca? Chewaka? Or Chewaka? Yeah. Chewaka? Chewbacca? Yeah. Chewy. He is Chewy. That is right, Chewy. How tall is Chewy? 7'4". Uh, 7'2". Seven, seven, Gosh, tight. All right. What about Richard Keel? Who is Richard I Keel? I do not. The longest yard. Oh, the big. Oh, Happy the Gilmore. Guy. Yeah. Jaws. I, I, the big. Yeah. Guy. Yeah. Just passed I, away. I broke his freaking neck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I broke his. <laughs> I'm saying seven one. He's seven two. The tallest person in the world, Alan, is who? And how tall? Eastern Europe, somewhere I believe, Latvia, something like that, and I'm gonna say seven nine. <laughs> You're just throwing out. No, the no, it was, it was a guy playing in NBA. It was a tall, uh, tall white guy. Uh, what was it not a Frenchman? Was he about? He's about seven eight. Wrong. The tallest living person is Sultan Kosin from Turkey. Oh, Turkey. Eight foot three inches tall. This yeah, dude is eight three. Tallest woman in the world. What do you think? I got nothing. Sue Fang. Sue, Sue Fang. I say Sue Fang is seven foot one. She is seven three from Gosh, China. Dang. Sue Fang. The tallest woman ever was eight feet tall. Wow. Zing Jinlan. Did she marry the guy from Turkey? No. They'd have had like oh, a, oh man. They'd have like a 12, 12 footer. Now listen, there have only been 16 eight footers in the history of the world. 16. Who was the tallest ever, Al? We're testing Alan's seven-foot credentials here. Well, that's an eight-foot credential. Yeah, you put him in another club. He's only <laughs> he's a foot club. He's out of his depth. He's a foot out of his depth. I, I would need a lifeline on that one. Lifeline to Jimmy. Uh, please leave a message. I'm not here right now. <laughs> You're telling me you've never you. read the Guinness Book of World Records? No, I, it, seriously, I'm going to go through that and waste part of my day. Robert Wadlow. 
eight feet, 11 inches tall. And let me tell you something right now. Let, let's get to the facts here and let's get straight. But this guy has a sheet in front of him and he's reading it. He's, he keeps reading it. He's sitting down there, do. got his eyes on it, and he's acting like he knows this stuff. He doesn't know any of it until he starts reading the paper. Listen, I have, he acts stood, like an expert in it. I have stood next to a statue of Robert Wadlow in Branson, Missouri at Ripley's, believe it or not. So there. He was still growing. He was 40 years old, Al, and he had the medical thing with the pituitary gland, the hyper, and so he was still, he would have been the world's only nine-footer, except maybe Goliath, going back to the day. How, was, how big was Goliath? I don't know? know. I don't know. Ten stones? Something like that? <laughs> <laughs> he got knocked out by one. Al, uh, oh. what is it like being, what's the questions that annoy you as a seven-foot person? You know, the questions don't annoy me. Usually it's the context or the tone. Uh, I, I get them all. How tall are you? Did you play basketball? How's the weather up there? I always take it as a compliment. At least people talk to me that way. Otherwise, you know, people may not talk to me. I never went to uh, Dwayne Finches and spit on somebody and told him it was raining. <laughs> That's right, he did. And he got tired of the question. He snapped. Yeah. And yeah. What names did you get called? You know, Stretch and uh, Big Chief. Yeah. and. It was always Big Al. Just Big Al? Yeah, it was always Big Al. Yeah, Big Al. You definitely have an NBA body, Alan. You you look like an NBA. He walks in, you know. He walks in. Is that a compliment? Yeah, no. He, he, he walks that? in, and people go, "What NBA team did you play for?" If you knew now, what you know now. If you knew that then, when you were fifteen, if you could go back, like Uncle Rico, I could have thrown it over the mountain. What could you have changed to make the NBA? Because you definitely had the physical body. At the time, I did not. I was, I think I weighed 230 pounds when I graduated college. Uh, so at seven foot tall. So I was light. I was skinny. Um, what I know now is that no matter what you weigh, it doesn't matter. Just go out and play. Did you play as hard as you could looking back? Um, you know, when I was in the CBA, I can say I did. Uh, I went to practice every day. I remember going to practice and making the guys who, you know, because I didn't play much back in the CBA with the quarter system and the point system. I didn't get to play much. So I was always fresh the next day when we would have a hard practice. And I would just try and abuse the big guys uh, on the other team. So much so, I remember I, I couldn't miss a shot one day and the other big man were playing some competitive game and, you know, he gave me tried to break my nose with an elbow, gave me a bloody nose, <laughs> got that taken care of, came back out into the court and just kept going at him again. How'd Flip handle uh, that when something like that happened in practice? Oh, he was cheering me on. He was loving it. And uh, I think I played in seven games that year. One game I played had a minute and 34. In a minute and 34 seconds, I scored seven points and had like five rebounds. Nice. Yeah, and they break it out into the 48 minute per minute breakdown. <laughs> He would average 50 a game, right, Al? No, uh, yeah, it was more than that. It was like 100. And uh, all the players were like, Al, you need to go talk to Flip, man. You'd be like, Coach, you need, <laughs> you need some more time, Al. You need to tell Flip, you need some more time. I was like, Thanks, fellas. I'm good. I got to go back to this. So you're, you're the 10th man, Al. Yep. And you won a CBA championship and part of a yep. team. There are a lot of kids that get in roles where they're the 10th kid or 8th kid and they're on the bench. What can you encourage or tell kids out there? what they should be doing when they're sitting on the bench and they're like a practice player and they're barely getting in the game. What can they do to help their team? So my job was keep the team up. Uh, if somebody came out of the game and did something wrong, uh, Z or flip a blade, Al, Al, get them up, keep them up. 
And then during the CBA championship, it was make sure that the crowd was into it. Watch what the other team was doing, whatever it took to have somebody ready to go in the game. We had a perfect example of this with the Kansas City Royals and uh, Christian Cologne. Yeah. You know, with Johnny Good Gomes, time. who didn't who didn't play at all, and yet he was in uh, Cologne's ear and mm-hmm. prepping him. Yeah. So it's being a good teammate. Don't be, you know, don't be negative. Always be positive and keep your teammates up and encourage them um, for the greater good because it's about winning in the end. So you bring a lot of energy, enthusiasm yep. into practice oh, yeah. every day. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Talk a lot of trash. Get people fired up. It was fun. It was a great time. It was, it was honestly uh, being around Flip and the team is one of the best years of my life. Alan, what a great place to end, man. We we appreciate you sharing your memories of Flip. I, I know you took it hard, and we appreciate that you were willing to talk about it. Oh, you know what, guys? I'm just thankful for the opportunity, number one, to talk about it, and number two, for the opportunity to be around Flip and uh, to learn just a little bit from the guy was an amazing, amazing thing. Nobody was more passionate about the game of basketball than Flip Saunders. I liked his coaching aspect because he did things that were unique. He didn't just follow the run-of-the-mill game plan that the NBA kind of promotes. was unique in what he tried to do with the game. It was special. So uh, we're off of iTunes, off of New and Noteworthy now. You get a few weeks, I guess, you're New and Noteworthy. We appreciate all of your shares and likes and everything. So anyway, you can... Yeah, they can continue to subscribe, rate, review, and, and just share the show with family, friends, or people they think that can benefit from the information that we're giving them would be great. Like the show at Jim Huber Show uh, on Facebook, and then you can Twitter Jimmy at... The Jim Huber Show. 